Hey y'all, and welcome back to Uplift Fit Nutrition Radio. I'm your host, Lacey Dunn, registered dietitian, here to spread the scientific knowledge in the worlds of fitness and nutrition. I'm so excited about today's episode, so make sure you listen in and get ready to learn. Hey y'all, welcome back to Uplift Fit Nutrition Radio. Today's guest is Jessie Hoffman. She has a PhD in nutritional sciences, a master's in nutrition, and she's also a positive nutrition course instructor. I am so excited to have Jessie on my podcast. She is a voice for science and for proper education um, in regards to anything, whether it be gut health, proper nutrition, etc. So Jessie, thank you so much for taking your time to come on my podcast I'm so stoked. And can you tell my listeners a little bit about who you are and your background? And then we can dive into the exciting topics from there. Sure. So just thank you so much for having me. It's really such an honor to be on your podcast. And I'm incredibly excited to dive in some of these topics. So a little bit of background about me. Um, I got my bachelor's actually in biology and then decided I wanted to go study nutrition So I went and got my master's in nutrition at UNC Greensboro. I always rep the school. Phenomenal nutrition department. Always recommend that department. Great faculty, great teachers, everything. Um, And then decided that it kind of piqued my interest with research, that I really wanted to get a PhD. Um, So I actually met my husband during my master's. So we coordinated a place to do our PhD. And so we ended up at the University of Kentucky, um, which is quite... Uh, out of our comfort zones because he's from Missouri and I'm from South Carolina. So it was very different for us. Um, But ultimately I was, we went there and we did research. We both actually did research on the gut microbiome. Um, So we became like the gut microbiome couple. Um, But his research was on the gut microbiome and Alzheimer's disease, which is some really cool stuff. And then mine was um, the gut microbiome in uh, exposures to environmental pollutants and how we can use nutrition to modulate um, that and attenuate the effects of environmental pollutants on the gut. So that's kind of an overview of my research. Um, In addition to that, I've always really wanted to be a registered dietitian. I learned that um, basically when I started my master's and started taking some of the coursework to become a registered dietitian that I needed, um, and I just completed my internship like less than a month ago, um, so I will be taking my RD exam pretty soon. So then I'll be a registered dietitian. Oh my gosh. Uh, I'm so excited for you. Yay. Hey. And finally we'll be done with school. So if anybody is a registered dietitian, I'm currently studying Gene Inman. And if anybody has studied that, they know it's a lot. <laughs> oh, it's a lot. And the way that they do the RD test, it's, It's not even sometimes the answers aren't even to what you would answer on a day-to-day basis, like in clinical practice. It's all about what the Inman wants. So it's it's quite confusing. Yeah, I I can totally get that with just like studying right now. It's very nitpicky. And so we, we have to know things that are not just like medical nutrition therapy. We have to know things about food service, which is not very much of my interest. How to bake. I just got through the domain with all of the, like, uh, like I don't know, basic food chemistry stuff. And I'm like, this is kind of interesting, but I probably won't ever use this information again. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's like, whoa, what happens when there's too much sugar? What happens when there's too much egg? 
Oh, what yields what? I'm like, oh my God, I really do not care. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I've been in school for the past 10 years and so I'm ready, very much ready to be done with uh, being on the other side of the classroom. And so I'm actually uh, currently was just hired as a teaching postdoc um, to roll out online courses for the university that I graduated oh, from. Congrats. I was just um, about to ask, what are your plans? Yeah, so that's what I'm doing now. I'm teaching online primarily um, with uh, University of Kentucky, and so I'm getting to teach some pretty cool courses like drug and nutrient interactions, um, nutrition and chronic disease, things like that. Um, so that's pretty fun. And then on top of that, I have aspirations once I get my RD to kind of open up my own um, private practice and do some nutrition counseling. Um, so I have my website up and running, but not officially taking nutrition clients now until I get my RD. Well, I'm so thrilled for you. It's going to be, private practice is incredible and you're going to thrive on it. And especially with your, your knowledge and your history and everything that you do and you know, it's going to be very impactful for your clients. Thanks so much. I'm excited, but it's also very nerve wracking because you're your own boss and yet, which is fun, but you're also the only person to motivate yourself. So <laughs> that <laughs> if, if I something know, doesn't get that done, I it's know. on you. <laughs> Yeah. If you ever need somebody to um, crack the whip, I'm always here. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thanks. <laughs> okay. Well, my que- my next question for you is a really controversial topic. So let's chat sugar addiction. And my question for you is, what does the science say about sugar addiction? Is it real? Is it fake? What are the effects on our bodies and our brain reward centers? Yeah, so sugar addiction and food addiction in general is like a kind of a hot topic and a polarizing topic right now, Um, and it's something that I've kind of expressed my thoughts about on social media, Um, and I've gotten kind of pushback in some instances and then some support um, for my thoughts and beliefs on the research, but so this is where being not being an abstract warrior comes into play, so first glance, if you search sugar addiction, And if you're going to be one of those abstract warriors where you're just typing in what you believe, finding, reading abstracts and being like, okay, this is a thing, moving on, um, you could very much convince yourself that sugar addiction is a real thing because there are several studies, primarily in rodents, so I'll say that a lot, um, that point towards parallels between sugar or food in general and um, substances of abuse, uh, mainly in the brain. So if you were just to like face value, look at um, studies on PubMed or even just search not, I mean, I'd never recommend this, but blogs and stuff like that that pop up, you could very much convince yourself that sugar addiction is a thing. The issue is, like I mentioned, all of the research is primarily done in rodents and they rely on the fact that um, sugar is able to light up certain reward centers in our brain similar to that of substances of abuse. So the issue I have with that is because um, just because something lights up a reward center in the brain does not mean it's quote unquote addictive um, because other things light up reward centers, that same reward center of the brain, um, like petting a dog, hugging, um, things like gambling and stuff like that, which are obviously can have addictive like, uh, I don't know, tendencies. But just to kind of point it out, there are, quote unquote, good and bad things that light up that reward center. And so we can't just classify everything that goes into that as an addiction. 
um, because you wouldn't say someone's addicted to hugging. You wouldn't say someone's addicted to petting their dog, although, like, I love dogs, so, I mean, but anyways, so it's, that argument is just very faulty, in my opinion. I don't know how you feel about that. Um, What are your thoughts on that? I'm I'm in full agreement. I think it's beyond to just that reward center. I think it's that these high sugar, these high fat foods are a mixture of the high sugar, the high fat, the high salt, and they're very palatable. So they're tasty and we want yeah. more of that. And that is also a reason why people think they are addicted to sugar, but really they're addicted to the highly palatable foods. So I think yeah. it's also not just looking at the data in the rodent studies, um, I wish people would stop looking at rodent studies and being like, oh, this is true. This I is know, science. Um, but also, you know, it's it's also what people are consuming and the whole entire quantity and quality of the food that they're eating. Yeah, and I think it's really important to change the narrative on, like, how people express their, you know, feelings about this. When you label something as addiction, like as a, a food saying it's addictive, you're giving it a ton of power. And I would rather say you have, you know, tendencies towards emotional eating where you are relying on food. Um, is that the healthiest thing to do? Probably not. Um, is it probably healthier than doing something like cocaine? Yeah. Um, are there ways we can help you find other mechanisms to cope with the feelings that you're feeling and not have to rely on food so you feel quote-unquote addicted? Yeah, we can do that. Um, So I think it's very important to kind of change the terminology because when we label something a food, even as addictive or something like that, you're giving it so much power, and then that's because we consider drugs to be addictive. Labeling food as such gives it, makes it seem more powerful I guess I keep kind of repeating that but um I just don't like that that frame that frame of reference for that um yeah so that's how I feel with that part um but so kind of getting back to the research um again it's just super flawed because it's all in rodents and um something that is interesting though another rodent study was able to show that when you obliterated this reward mechanism of the brain, the rats die of starvation, meaning they don't eat. Um, which something interesting to me is that I believe food is meant to be have some reward to it. Because if we had no drive to eat, if we had no mechanism telling us you need to eat, um, you, you need to derive pleasure out of eating, you need to seek out food, we would not be around. We would die because... Let's be honest, food is expensive, it's time-consuming, it can be a hassle, you know, it requires some knowledge to learn how to prep food and things like that. And so, and when you factor out, factor in how much time that would take into your day, um, if we had no drive to eat, we wouldn't eat. Um, So I think that's pretty important too. And I just, I kind of, I agree with you that it's not just the, uh, not just sugar itself, it's the super palatable foods that we can find ourselves being able to eat more more of and more often and um, kind of sometimes feel out of control around. Yeah, and I think, you know, looking at all the other factors that could be playing a role to why somebody feels like they're addicted to sugar would be reinforcement and learning and your previous experiences or trauma or emotions that are tying you 
maybe to that food. Maybe that's something yeah. that you enjoyed when you were little, when you were sad or you had with your dad who sadly passed away or something that creates that response to you wanting that food or having a better feeling with that food, feeling better, increasing that dopamine and that those reward centers. So I think it's more than just the food itself and humans. I think it's, yeah. you know, it's also emotion. It's also experiences. We're very emotional individuals. And again, like emotional eating does get a bad rap. Um, but and to an extent, humans, when you, emo- when humans emotional eat, that's pretty normal. We have instances where we're going to be happy and we're going to celebrate and we're going to do that with food and others. Like, I don't want to demonize emotional eating, but it's when it becomes um, to the point where it's interfering with your life um, and and interfering with your happiness that we need to figure out what's going on and address it. Yes, I fully agree. Okay, so moving on to our next topic, let's chat about what to focus on when reading studies. So what dictates a good study? What dictates a bad study? What are red flags to look at? So when it comes to a study, I always tell people, you know, I don't, don't be, like I mentioned before, don't be an abstract warrior. Don't just read the abstract. But the abstract is very helpful for getting an idea of how the study is formatted. And what I like about abstracts are that they are available to everyone. Um, like you said, uh, like we talked about before, studies can be very expensive um, and hard to access and things like that. Um, and if you're not affiliated with the university, the chance of you being able to read certain studies is slim to none. Um, so being able to read the abstract and at least get a gist of what's going on is important. So I would always start there. Um, and you can get an idea of, is it a rodent study? You should be able to tell that from the abstract. Is it a rodent study? Is it a cell culture study? Is it an actual human study? Is it a clinical trial? Um, because we consider clinical trials, specifically randomized um, clinical trials, to be kind of the gold standard in research um, just because of the, the um, strict kind of parameters set out by just the study design itself. Um, so I always start with the abstract, um, look to see... If it, I would primarily look at human research if someone is just looking to find um, an answer for does this supplement in humans, is it actually beneficial? Um, I wouldn't rely on rodent studies for that um, just because that's not the purpose of a rodent study. A rodent study is really the purpose is to kind of gain evidence that it, that something may be going on and, we'll, and then we'll move to human studies. So if you can only find rodent studies, the chance of it being effective in humans um, is kind of, it's either slim or just not, the science isn't there yet. Um, So look at sample size, which is incredibly important. So if we're doing a human study and you're reading through and you see, oh, only 10 participants were in that study um, and they found something that was significant, you know, it doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means that if you select 10 people, you know, there's a lot of variables that can go into what you find, and you could find something that's significant, um, that may be significant in that population you selected, um, that wouldn't apply to the rest of the population, just because the sample size is so small and you're only capturing just a portion of it. Um, So that's really important. It kind of irks me when people tout um, these massive, you know, findings, and then you go and look at the sample size, and oh, it's like 10 to 15 people. You're like, that that needs to be done in like a big, large group before we say anything. Yeah, or Uh, how they actually developed that sample size. 
Yeah. Did you just like what was the exclusion? Was it by choice people? Because I know all these all these um, recreational lifting studies, obviously, those are a lot of people that want to be in the study that even that may have an experience or want to have experience. So their drive to grow that muscle is going to be a lot greater than somebody who was just a random person on the street. And when you're, when you're looking at nutrition studies specifically, if it is a volunteer-based study um, and they're recruiting at their university, a lot of nutrition uh, like studies like that, if they were recruiting voluntarily, are going to get a lot of nutrition students, yes. um, because it, especially if there's an incentive, um, like any sort of like $25 Amazon gift card or something like that. Um, so you're going to be selecting a population that is, one, already interested in research, two, already interested in nutrition. Um, so that's biasing your sample sample there. So um, most studies you should look to see if it's like well randomized um, and something that's kind of important when you're implementing, you know, say you're wanting someone to take a supplement, um, is, there a, is a, there a placebo supplement being administered? Um, do the, um, are the researchers blinded? Are the participants blinded? Meaning that they don't know what they're taking um, and then the researchers don't know exactly what they're giving them. Um, they have like a number assigned and then that's in a database. And so the researcher themselves doesn't know because that can introduce bias into a study. Um, so little things like that are incredibly important to look out for. Um, and something that's kind of, I kind of caution people to look for when they're reading the kind of discussion of a paper. So um, at the end of a paper, they'll all, all manuscripts will have a discussion section where they talk about their findings of the study and compare it with that of what, they, what other studies have found in the field. If the study is only looking, if in the discussion they're only discussing one side of the story, um, say it's a polarizing topic and um, they're only choosing to discuss the research that's supporting what they found, um, that's a big red flag for me because most research, when you're reading the discussion, it's really helpful to have, we found this, however, other studies have found this, like, so there's obviously a discrepancy. Um, so that's really important. Um, obviously, there are some topics in the field where the research will be really strong and um, there won't be a discrepancy, but the majority of the time, there's some sort of discrepancy in the research and not everybody is going to find the same thing just because... Humans are very variable creatures, and we're influenced by so many different things. So if one study was conducted in New York City and one was conducted in, you know, down in Florida, um, those environments are obviously very different. Those populations of people are obviously very different. Um, There's a lot of factors that go into um, the outcomes of studies and uh, having that different background, different genetics, different environment you are living in can definitely influence things so yeah and I think it's important to let listeners know that also and I don't want to be like hey I don't want to say that research is so totally flawed but people writing these papers and the discussions they can cherry pick they can choose what they put into their papers oh 100% so that's you know I don't like you I don't want to be like Debbie Downer about the research but we have to realize that the field itself um, is very much published or perished. So if you do not publish your research, um, you're not going to make it in academia, and you're going you're gonna to have to leave and go find another job. Um, that's just the way the environment is. And so everyone is kind of incentivized to publish as many papers and as many high-impact journals, get as many citations of those papers 
as you can in order to maintain a good status and get future grants. Um, and so if someone is studying, you know, this, this molecule causes cardiovascular disease and they're very much certain that it's coming from like a dietary aspect, um, anything that's going to go against what they believe is they're going to ignore. Does that make sense? I don't know. It's, I'm maybe trying to be too specific about a specific instance, and I probably don't need to go down that route. (laughs) No, it's okay. Um, I just definitely want to list some other things that um, are red flags for me. Uh, Definitely, the key is correlation does not equal causation. So people need to keep that in mind just um, just because... There is a correlation between somebody eating cheese and falling into a pool does not mean that eating cheese caused them to fall into the pool. Really random, but that is a <laughs> that is a thought. Um, of course, we need to focus and know that epidemiological studies and observational studies cannot determine cause and effect. I see that time and time again, especially in the whole saturated fat and cholesterol and cardiovascular disease yep. world. So keep in mind, those observational studies, those epidemiological studies have a lot less control. And like you said... That um, RCT, that randomized clinical trial, is going to be the gold standard. Um, Another Mm -hmm. one, confounding, exists. A variable that may influence the results and skew it. So if we look at something like people who intake more dairy or less dairy, what if they also smoked? Yep. There's, yeah, confounding variables are something that's very present in research. And when you're doing, you know, statistics and proper statistics, you should be able to adjust for those. Um, But again, humans are not perfect. And uh, a lot of researchers like to think they can do everything on their own. But a lot of times we need a biostatistician or someone to help us out. So um, when we don't utilize that, we can introduce a lot of error um, and variability into our studies. Now, what are your thoughts on funding sources? As far as, so the majority of funding in my experience does come from the government. I think that's pure, clean, good funding. Um, You know, we all, the funding is very competitive. Um, So the primary sources of funding come from the National Institutes of Health and then the sub um, organizations that are under that, which are all government funded. Um, So that's where, you know, the majority of our research funding comes from. And so you should be able to see you should be able to see funding sources stated within every manuscript. If it's not stated in a manuscript, that's a major red flag. Um, So when it comes to industry-based funding, um, meaning uh, an example like a pharmaceutical company is funding the study of a drug um, that they manufactured, um, it does raise, you know, not a red flag, but it does heighten kind of my awareness to reading an article, and it should because... They are giving the money for that study to be conducted. Um, So therefore, researchers may feel obligated um, or some pressure to, you know, produce, quote unquote, good good data um, for that. Um, I feel like drugs are a little bit more well controlled than things like supplements. But um, yeah, so if there was uh, an industry um, company or supplement company that was, you know, giving money to have the study um, run by, you know, some, some lab at a university or even a private, um, lab, um, that raises a red flag. And I, 
wouldn't say to disregard that study. Um, I would just say to read it more critically with a fine tooth comb and um, because humans are humans and we are naturally like we're, we're not all great. Some people have more ethics than others. And I would hope that researchers doing that studies would would be able to not let their bias or pressures to produce good data influence um, that. But we just have to be real that those things can that can leach in. So I believe for the majority of part, people are good, but it just kind of heightens my awareness when I'm reading something um, and makes me read things a little more critically than I would if I would be reading something that is um, funded from the government per se. Yeah, I think that's very important. Um, And just uh, maybe two more things. Um, People need to be careful with numbers and percentages like threefold increase because or twofold increase because threefold increase can mean you're adding on 30 pounds or 10 pounds versus 0.3 pounds or 0.1 pounds. And that is huge. That is a huge difference. So when looking at like body composition studies, you really got to dig in. Like what are they actually talking about? And when you're looking at things like relative risk or absolute risk, so relative risk is going to be comparing it um, relatively to other numbers that are, you know, within that comparing the change relatively versus absolute risk. So say your relative risk increased by 25%, um, relative risk of developing some disease increased by 25%, but the actual risk of doing that is still very, very low. Um, That 25% is often what people in the media will latch onto and kind of scream from the rooftops. Um, So, yeah, that kind of goes along with what you were saying. You have to look at the actual percentages, actual numbers. Um, Is this something that's um, statistically significant or biologically significant? Um, So you could see, you know, a study could find that um, a supplement decreases cholesterol, cholesterol by three points and they deemed that statistically significant because their study had enough people in it to make that quote unquote statistically significant. Um, at a practical level, is that biologically significant? Is a three point reduction in your cholesterol um, really going to change much of your outcomes with regards to risk for cardiovascular disease? Mm, probably not. Um, so that's something you have to look at too. So, you know, statistics are powered and designed to. Um, answer questions and oftentimes um, there's a difference between something being just statistically significant by the math and data and then actually having any sort of practical relevance. Oh, that's so important. Thank you so much for diving into that. Uh, Let's tell my listeners a little bit about what statistical significance is and why it matters. Yeah, so stats are like the crux of all science. Stats suck, Um, that's all. They do. Um, (laughs) I don't like them, and that's kind of why I gave a shout-out to our biostatisticians out there because they are helping us do things correctly. So like my study with microbiome and things like that, the stats for that are pretty complicated, um, and you want to make sure that you're adjusting for so many different variables um, things like that. So having someone that is very savvy in stats and things to do and how that works is super important. Um, but kind of a generic overview. When you set out to design a study, we all know from elementary school that you should develop a hypothesis. Um, you should develop, you know, what you think is going to happen, what relationship do you think exists. And so when it comes to stats, technically when we design studies, we develop two hypotheses. We develop something called the null hypothesis, which means like there's no relationship um, 
that is present there. And then we develop our alternative hypothesis, which means that there is a relationship there that would be significant. Um, so basically, in stats, we think um, kind of like we do um, in uh, like criminal cases, we think like innocent until proven guilty, it's false until we are able to prove it true. So we always assume that the null hypothesis or stating that there is nothing, um, there's no effect, no relationship, we always assume that is true until statistics tell us to accept the alternative hypothesis. Um, so an example there, our null hypothesis, kind of going back to the cholesterol thing, um, uh, if you have a supplement, you would say that a supplement does not lower cholesterol or does not do anything to cholesterol. And then your alternative hypothesis would be that the supplement does lower cholesterol. And so the way we test if these hypotheses are true are through our experimental design and our experiments. And then when we get the data from that, we have some sort of numerical data and we test that um, using various statistical tests. And I will not get into that, but um, the outcomes of that are typically something called a p-value or a probability value. Um, that basically means um, it's a level that mean, that states the probability that the relationship is due to chance. So what you want there, what a researcher wants to see is a lower p-value. Um, so a most cases, research um, sets a p-value as p is less than 0.05, which means there's a less than a 5% chance that the effect observed is not real, meaning that there's like a very small chance that... Um, the effect you're seeing is just due to chance. Um, there's arguments that that level is not strict enough in science. Um, so, yeah, that's beyond the scope of this. But um, the issue is where you become begin testing tons and tons and tons of different um, variables, and you don't set out with your study to have very defined endpoints that you would test. And so you just end up kind of testing everything possible, throwing all the darts at the wall at once, um, there's a greater chance of you finding a result that is not real just due to that probability. Um, so kind of going long-winded here, but um, the p-value is really like what we look for in research. And so you, you might see, you'll, you will see that in studies when you're reading studies. And so um, and, and you'll just know in order for something to be deemed significant by the scientific community, you have to see a p is less than 0.05 typically. Yeah. And what are your thoughts on the way that people can kind of manipulate the p-value? Because I've read to where they're able to kind of manipulate and find how many participants they need in order to possibly find a, a statistically significant p-value. Yeah. So your, your study should be what we call appropriately powered, meaning that you're going to have enough study participants um, to be able to find anything that's relevant. Um, but like, I, you know, when you have such a large sample size, um, you are reducing the variability, which is great. Um, but you are inducing, there is some, in, some chance of you finding something that's not real. Um, and that kind of goes on long, that's this kind of called P hacking. And I kind of alluded to that before in just a few seconds ago, um, when I was saying that, you know, you're throwing all of your darts at the wall. Um, the chance of you finding something significant when it's not just by that 5% level um, is pretty high. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of uh, that that can go on with research. Um, I believe the government, governmental agencies and NIH and things like that are really cracking down 
on things like that, and they're cracking down on things like reproducibility. Are our studies reproducible between labs, between um, universities, you know, across the country, across the world? Um, so uh, research is really cracking down on things like that and trying to reduce any sort of um, issues with reproducibility and p-hacking and things like that. Just the issue, it's just, p-hacking has really just become kind of an issue currently because we have what we call, um, there's so much quote-unquote big data out there now. So we have, our technology is just so great. We are able to test so many different things and do these massive gene arrays, you know, multiplex models and things like that where we get tons of data back. Um, so working that again, working with a statistician to be able to control for multiple comparisons and things like that, um, to make sure what you're finding is truly statistically significant and biologically relevant, um, rather than just a chance because you tested so many different things. Oof, there's a lot to think about for sure. I know. Now, I really want to get into the nitty gritty of some of the gut health information and science that you've been partaking in and love. So do you mind taking something that you absolutely have been passionate about in regards to your studies with gut health and let's chat about it? Um, sure. So uh, we can talk about pesticides or we can talk about pollutants. We yeah. Can talk so, about artificial sweeteners. Yeah. So um, my research really focused on an environmental pollutant called a polychlorinated biphenyl that was banned in the 70s, but it doesn't degrade, so it's really still around in our environment, and there's been studies to show that we have detectable levels of it, most people do, in our blood. Um, and the common way, it is um, what we call a lipophilic pollutant, meaning that it is um, it fat-soluble, so it will um, accumulate in the tissue of different fatty um, animals and things like that. And what it does there is it begins to what we call bioaccumulate along the food chain um, as just the food chain progresses. And we, as humans, get exposed to it through consumptions of things like fatty fish, fatty dairy, um, things like that. Now, the levels at which we get exposed to this are highly variable based on the regions you live in. Um, and there's, it's really hard to tell how much you'd be exposed to. But basically what my research found was that um, exposure to these pollutants, and I will preface all of this, that I don't like to overhype things because my research was done in the mouse model and we know that they are not great. Um, but it's not ethical for me to give pollutants to humans, so I have to do what I can. Um, but uh, we did find that exposure diet through dietary means changed their microbiome um, and exacerbated it to what we would consider a more pro-inflammatory um, phenotype of the microbiome. Um, and then we also see developments of cardiovascular disease with um, exposure and um, some molecules that are being produced from the gut that may be influencing the development of cardiovascular disease. Um, so that was part of my uh, dissertation. And then I looked at on the second half was um, intervening with uh, dietary inulin. So something that is prebiotic um, to kind of restore the gut microbiome, alter it back to um, what we would deem quote unquote healthy. Um, and we did see a lot of benefits, um, mainly with disease reduction um, cardiovascular disease reduction, uh, diabetic um, incidence in these animals. Um, we saw that reduced with inulin. So that was really interesting. Um, but I guess 
I don't like to overhype that because, it, again, it's in an animal model. It's very controlled. Um, it doesn't really mean a whole lot for humans, which is kind of frustrating when you do research for years and you never understand if it'll ever make an impact. But um, I did learn a lot, and it developed kind of a greater interest and greater skepticism with the microbiome just because I know um, that the changes that we see in the microbiome um, we fully don't understand what that means yet. Um, we can say that um, a microbiome gets changed to something that is more dysbiotic or not normal, um, but we as microbiologists and scientists in the field don't really know what each of these bacterial species fully does um, yet, so it's really hard to um, figure out um, what that truly means in a biological perspective. And so I guess I get really frustrated when I see people and companies tout um, like microbiome sequencing um, to determine what diet you need to be eating oh, because the science so is not there yet. It is not. Like, do not waste your money. I'm so sorry the science is not there. <laughs> Just like we're not quite there to be able to tell you to, you know, take 23andMe and eat specifically for your genetics. Um, we can make little tweaks and know certain things about um, the way you're going to metabolize certain nutrients based on your genetics, but we're not at the level yet. This field um, of testing your genetics and testing your microbiome, they're still so young, and it's just it's too early to make recommendations based on that, and it's just a waste of money, so save your money if you're thinking about doing microbiome testing. <laughs> oh, fully agree, and you know, also the RNA is not even always stable. So there might be yeah. changes by the time it gets to the lab. Exactly. So like in our, you know, when we take, uh, I'm a master at collecting poop samples. I, you know, just, <laughs> I joke with that, you know, in my lab all the time. So I have a method for collecting mouse poop. Um, so I am, I'm just like the mouse poop queen. But um, when we collect, you know, mouse species, we are able to, you know, get that RNA from it pretty rapidly. Um, and, you know, get that into its component where it can go to be sequenced pretty rapidly so we know things are stable. When you're doing at-home tests, I mean, not only are you having to, you know, sample yourself and collect things in an environment that may not be, you know, fully sterile otherwise, um, you're having to then somehow ship that back to the company, which is takes some time. Um, then they're having, whenever they get to it, they'll they'll get to it. And, but who knows what's changed by that time. So that's just another factor. And it just induces so much variability. Mm -hmm. um, not to say that what, they're, what these companies are doing is bad science. Um, because I'm sure what they're doing is just like the samples that I've been able to run um, and get sequenced um, with the microbiome. But the problem is it's not the science itself, the mechanisms that, that are flawed it's what they're doing with the application of it so even if you got a readout that you know gave you your bacterial profile the only thing you can do from that is be like hmm, that's cool like that's all you can really do from that yeah um, that's very very important um i know in my master's there was um there was a professor that was going to do research on resistant starch and she needed help with people either cooking and cooling potatoes or looking at the gut the fecal matter from humans and mm -hmm. she wanted to put me on the fecal matter and I was like <laughs> I you know what I think I'm gonna do a system systematic review <laughs> yeah 
yeah, that I was like, I cannot deal with human poop. It's like, I can cook and cool potatoes, but I don't want to deal with human poop. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, yeah, props that's... to people. Props to people that get in, that get dirty and get in the nitty gritty of things with studies. Yeah, it's, it's not glamorous at times, but I'm thankful that mine were only little mouse pellets and not human poop. So <laughs> that that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> that is nice. Oh, um, oh yeah. I was going to talk about a little bit about inulin and different, um, fibers and their yeah. benefits. So as we know, good, they feed our good beneficial bacteria and they also can help reduce the blood glucose response, which can mm-hmm. help people if they have cardiovascular disease, diabetic, pre-diabetics, and can help with blood glucose control. However, just keep in mind, people, those fibers can heavily ferment. You have a lot of gas and bloating, and a lot of people overdo them, and especially overdo sugar alcohols these days. And we yeah. don't know yet. I think the struggle with sugar alcohols is we don't, we don't even know what the long-term effects of consuming these sugar alcohols are. Yeah, that's so true. Um, so I've not, I've yet to meet an individual who responds super well to inulin supplementation, um, just in, in response, in terms of, um, they feel good when they do it, not saying that it doesn't improve blood glucose or they're not getting any sort of beneficial bacterial fermentation from that. But a lot of people report very extreme bloating, very extreme bloating. Inulin is super highly fermentable, which, which is one of the reasons I chose it for my study because it's pretty potent. Um, it's, you know, inulin and resistant starch are probably the two most well-studied potent prebiotic, um, fibers out there and they're both very fermentable and you can get a lot of gas from it. Um, so I always recommend people to not take probiotic supplements and and to just focus on getting enough fruits and vegetables and whole grains from your diet because it's going to be way better tolerated. You're getting all of that food synergy, those food components interacting together, and you're getting all of the vitamins and minerals and things from those foods and the phytochemicals in their form in which they're meant to be consumed. So I always encourage that over a prebiotic supplement um, just for, uh, you know, tolerability and then um, cost too. I'm so with you. Thank you so much for noting that. A lot of people, you know, they'll be like, oh, I struggle with my fiber intake and they'll want to add a fiber supplement. And I'm like, that's not the same. You're not getting that food synergy. You're not getting the vitamins and minerals and you're not getting a combination of different fibers. Yeah. And to, and to just take a full fiber, you know, supplement, and I don't know how much you're getting in that supplement. If you're getting a ton, you can actually reduce the absorption of certain vitamins and minerals and, you know, beneficial compounds as well. So you don't want to overdo it. Um, there's definitely a fine balance to fiber and that comes with eating things in your, in your just a normal diet too. Um, if you're eating way too much fiber and you feel like crap, let's look at your fiber. Like you might be eating too much. There is such a thing is too much of a good thing. Yeah, you're going to prevent absorption. Yeah, and you're just not going to Or feel even cause like constipation. Yeah, depends on what type of fiber you're eating. You know, if you're eating a ton of soluble fiber and slowing things down a little bit, it might not feel too good for a while. <laughs> true words, true words. Okay, well, oh my gosh, this has been such an excellent chat. I would want, just want to thank you so much for taking your time to come on my podcast, sharing your knowledge, and sharing your expertise. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This has been so much fun. Yay! Well, do you mind telling my listeners where they can find you, they can follow you, and then where they can reach you um, for RD services in the future? 
Yeah, so I have just launched my web launched my website. It is jessiephd.com, um, and on there I offer um, uh, I will offer nutrition counseling services this fall, um, and then I also offer academic coaching. So for those who want to you know learn more about science, figure out if they want to go down a research path, um, I want to help you figure things out as as much as possible if that's you know, fine-tuning resumes, CVs, learning how to read the research, um, that's already live, and I've already had a few people um, that I've been working with, and it's incredibly fun to be able to get to use that experience as well. Um, so you can find me on that website, so that's Jesse Hoffman, I mean, jessiephd.com, and then my Instagram, where I'm most active, um, is Hoffman underscore PhD, and I try to pop in there um, fairly often. It's been a little, a little different and a little less active, um, since I've been doing my internship, but now that that's over, um, that's been much You're better. A free and bird. I, I'm a free bird for now, but um, <laughs> I do what we call what I call a Wednesday Q and A um, that people seem to like a lot. Um, so if you ever have any questions or things like that, you can always feel free to DM me. Um, but on Wednesdays, I open that question box up and we'll answer as many as possible. Um, so those are the two best places to find me. 